What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the Basement Yard, Vine, the Lopriori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Daniel Priori, and I'm joined by my special guest, Dr. Charles Corpru. We have so many things to talk about. He's the founder and the president of the uh, the WY Revolution Consulting, something that we're going to talk about, but he's also a doctor. And we were talking before how my mom told me one day, if somebody went to school for so long to get doctor, you call them doctor. So how about if I just call you Dr. Charles Corpro? It's all good. It's all good. I appreciate it. It's all good. So there's a couple of topics uh, that I would love to talk to you about, especially your take on uh masculinity is something that uh, obviously I have struggled with from time to time. I will be the first to admit it. My always asking is, what made you want to start WY Revolution? So WYR stands for What's Your Revolution? The impetus for, and I do have a podcast that's now a TV show, The What's Your Revolution Show. And the show really stemmed from my research that I was doing when I was a professor at Loyola University in uh, New Orleans. And actually the research I was doing when I was getting my PhD was around kind of toxic masculinity, what we're calling it today. Back then, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was hyper-masculinity. And the kind of term that's come out of, you know, is, is this toxic masculinity. And I wanted to get away from that, particularly hyper-masculinity, toxic masculinity had been associated with uh, BIPOC communities, particularly Latinx and Black men. And I was like, we're not a monolith. Uh, we are a diverse group of people and associating hyper-masculinity or toxic masculinity with a monolith of people was just inaccurate. And I wanted to be able to highlight the opportunities that were showing Black and Latinx and BIPOC men moving through the space of their masculinity development. And it's been interesting, like you said, you know, working through what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a, actually to be a human and to go through all the frailties and all of the opportunities and the greatness on down the spectrum? And that's why the conversation that I have with my guests on my show, particularly, is really around how are they revolutionizing their lives, their communities, and then the world at large. Especially, uh, I want to touch on something you said. Can you go into a little bit of detail? You could probably talk for hours about it. Kind of the differences between white toxic masculinity, Latinx, and black uh, toxic mas uh, masculinity. That's an interesting question, Danny. And I don't want to, uh, how do I want to say it? I don't, I, I don't want to categorize. I think if we just look at toxic masculinity altogether, I mean, depending on how it shows up, toxic masculinity might show up in, in white supremacy culture, thinking about it as dominance, uh, thinking about uh, the callousness that happens towards women, the superiority feeling, if you're thinking about white supremacy culture and how that is playing out. We're watching toxic masculinity play out with the confirmation hearings of Judge Brown and seeing that play out and how power structures are placed you know, have been placed around masculinity and then actually highlighted and actually subscribed to. And we're seeing this toxic masculinity within our country and particularly white supremacist 
uh, toxic masculinity. We saw January 6th of 21 and how, how that played out and this feeling of privilege, like, you know, these things that are taking away from being taken away from me when we've seen 400 years of laws, Jim Crow laws, voter rights suppression, all the things that are playing out that are hampering our communities from actually thriving. So that's what we're seeing. If we were to look at the other context and, you know, again, dominance, superiority, callous feelings towards women uh, and how that shows up in Black and Latinx communities. For sure. I hate moving that conversation that way because we don't spend enough time talking about what it looks like to be healthy outside of the toxic, outside of the hyper-masculine. See me, I grew up in a mixed household. My father's Italian and my, and my mother's Puerto Rican. Both cultures show a very hyper-toxic masculinity. At some point, is toxic masculinity learned or has it evolved into something that's like almost genetic at this stage? I believe in nature nurture, but I think when it comes to masculinity, gender is a, a construct that we have construed to actually, you know, place us into categories. And so we are then socialized into what masculine and feminine are to be and how we act. You know, I always have this, this conversation with friends. I was like, if we said that masculine was feminine and feminine was masculine, right, from the day that we were born in reverse, how would we act? We tend to think I was born a man, I was born a, a woman, but we labeled that. Right. And then we associated behaviors that actually went along with that. There's a counter argument to that. Right. For instance, you and I both you know, grew up uh, where there was a boy's bathroom and a girl's bathroom. Right. And so now we're having this conversation around same sex bathroom. But we were taught to go to the boy's bathroom. We were taught to go to the girl's bathroom and whatever. But if we had seen no signs, people would just have been socialized to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And so thinking about it that way. And so how we view masculinity and how we view femininity is based on learned behavior. We learn that our parents socialize that our friends socialize that. And so rearranging those constructs. And that's why we're having a hard time right now with the conversation around transgender, right? Because we haven't been socialized. Right. And we have the, um, the big story in the sports world mm-hmm. about the swimmer. And, you know, it comes out as like, you know, are some people trying to have a structured argument? Or is this just coming from a place of discomfort and a, a nurtured history of hatred? There's a lot going on there. It's a very loaded question. But for me, I just know just from my personal upbringing, I've used words, uh, you know, if you fall down, it was, you know, stop being such a pussy. I'm just using the words that growing up. No, 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 please. I mean, look, hey, we're going to have fun on this conversation. No, I remember as a child and I was older, probably 11, 12, and I was playing baseball out in the front yard uh, with a lot of friends in the yard. And got hit in the eye. And I remember like running to my father crying like, oh, my God, I got my eye hit. Oh, my God. And then I realized, oh, shit, like I'm fucking 12 years old. And you're almost afraid. Yeah, exactly. The other thing, too, is that uh, you taught at Loyola in New Orleans. College is a very toxic, masculine environment. It can be. It can be in context. Yes, it can be. I don't, I don't want to say it for all, but, you know, maybe times have changed a little bit now, but. You know, uh, I graduated high school in 2006. They were still uh, very fratty, let's say. How many arguments did you get into daily? Like in terms of, you know, constructive arguments that you had with people almost defending toxic masculinity, just do maybe due to lack of information or like you said, the nurture that they came up with. That's an interesting thing because I'm having more conversations. I don't get in arguments. I don't like to argue. I'm a very peaceful person. However, 
I feel like argument just has such a negative connotation to it. It does. And don't get me wrong, Danny. I mean, I, I can go with the best of them, right? And I, <laughs> I, I can get emotional. I can I can throw the you know, the doctor out the window and 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 be and just be fully emotional in what I'm trying to say. I, I try not to do that. We're all human. Yeah, but what I'm seeing now, interesting in BIPOC communities. Can you explain what that is? Uh, black indigenous people of color. Got it. And so I'm seeing more and more men who are subscribing to, I, I know, to more, I'll say it, a conservative masculinity, you know, that, that has some toxic residue with it. I could be in that range from time to time. Yeah. And, and, and this conservative masculinity, I like, I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago and this gentleman was upset that Judge Brown had been nominated by President Biden. And this is a black man having a conversation, right? And he was upset. He was like, well, I kind of wish that he hadn't you know, said he was going to name a black woman. You know, what about having a, an, another black man on on the court? And I'm like, why do black women in in this context get all of the accolades, all of the acknowledgement, and their trials and tribulations are highlighted more than black men or, or, or Latinx men? And I was like, oh. And then I started seeing that there is this movement of what they're considering themselves like everyday men, right? The the rank and file men who feel like their narrative, they're not the elitists. Right. They're the rank and file Latinx black men who are like, look, our plight is just as strong as those of Latinx and black women. But, you know, we're not getting the media coverage. We're not getting this. Why are these women getting this? And they, there's a there's a little dismay and discomfort with them around that. They feel like they're getting jumped in line. Yeah, exactly. And so and many, you know, many of them I've talked to subscribe to a, a Trumpist ideal uh, around masculinity, this in your face and whether you believe he's a good president or a good person or not, that's not here for me to argue. But believing in, you know, say what's on your mind, do not care about the isms that are happening that are happening in the world, and just really to be all about this individual instead of the collective nature. So that's been interesting to have these conversations. And I'm more so in the learning phase of this because as a researcher, as a podcast, as a person who invests in BIPOC communities and BIPOC you know, entrepreneurs, those being men, I want to know like who I'm in bed with, you know, particularly for my money, you know? And so how does that feel? That's always important. Money isn't everything, but it sure is important. Exactly. And so thinking about who I'm investing in and who I'm working with, I want to at least know so we can have some conversations around are our values aligned? And they don't always have to be aligned, but I, I need to know so we can at least have a conversation so we can learn, hopefully learn from each other. I think as people, we've come a long way in terms of like being able to have like, you know, somewhat of a civilized conversation nowadays, especially just because the podcast world is blown up and you're seeing people that would probably have never crossed paths in real life having conversations. And uh, I think that's very important for me, though. It's like even when I started going to uh, therapy myself around two years ago, you don't realize how much toxicity you do walk around with you know, thinking that the stereotypical male-female relationship is supposed to be, I am provider, man, caveman, almost uh, aspect of thinking. I pay for this, so I should be treated this way. When I grew up, my grandmother didn't work. My grandfather was a real estate uh, investor, you know, a carpenter, amongst many things. You know, he would work all day, come home, she would cook and clean. That's what it was. So, as I got older, I kind of thought that that was the societal norm, that one day I'll get a job, I'll come home, she'll stay home and take care of the kids. 
And then, you know, as people, I work primarily through the internet, seeing people and their relationships with their mothers and stuff, I started to see it differently in different households. And they were predominantly white households, you know? So it was just like, for me, I said, oh, is this just because my mom's Puerto Rican? Like, I literally had this conversation with myself is like, are we dated? Are we old school? Or are we toxic? That is so interesting because I listened to my mother talk about being from the old school. What does that mean? Like, you, you guys just got treated like shit? Right. That's the interesting thing. And let me tell a little story here, if you don't mind. I find myself in relationships with women and thinking about how my father showed up for my mother. Right. And I was telling a story the other day about my fiance and I, or my ex-fiance, wonderful, amazing woman, Shauna Gentry. I always want to give a wonderful shout out to her and the, and the growth that she allowed me to be a, to do as a man. But I remember early in our relationship when things would go south and I would get mad or we would have a fight, I would sleep on the couch. Yeah, I'm guilty of that. I would sleep on the couch. And I remember she made me mad for some reason. And, and it was, it was something small, something, you know, honestly, Danny, it was something stupid, right? Usually is. Yeah, usually it is. And I hadn't taken responsibility for my emotions at that time. I own my emotions. No one else can make me feel anything. And I remember sleeping on the couch for three days. And after the third day, she came down, we were about to, you know, closing down for the night. And she was, are you coming to bed? It's been three days. And I was like, I'm still not talking to you. I don't, I'm, I'm mad with you. And she was like, this is pretty silly. She was like, I'm your partner. Yes, you might be mad at me. I might have made you mad, but it doesn't mean that you can't not be in this relationship with me. And that was old school. That was this unhealthy masculinity happening in the relationship. And I had to take a moment. I'm like, well, what am I missing here by sleeping on this couch? Well, I'm not having sex, right? I might be mad, but I still want to have sex. And what are we really getting out of the relationship if I'm sleeping on the couch and you're sleeping upstairs and we really haven't talked about what happened? It becomes like uh, almost like uh, something that you brush over because it's just a norm to you. Like I've seen my dad sleep on the couch many times. Yeah. Yeah. What is that game? I don't know. Nothing really. Because it just became something worse. And then I adopt that behavior because I saw my dad do it. Not to blame him. It's just something that in terms of like, oh, like you get mad at your wife and you go sleep on the couch and then you're a grump. We, we, we actually call my dad the GOTC, the grouch on the couch. We've called them that uh, many of times for, for maybe for like the last 20 years, we've called them that. But no, I agree with you. It's And and the other thing I, I didn't want to get too far away from was uh, a conservative masculinity. I'm somebody that's still learning every day too. As much as I've removed myself from toxic masculinity, it's still there. I have like a little bit of like a halo around me, you know, that's still there. It's It's thin, it's getting thinner, but it's still there. The question I wanted to ask you is, do men have an argument to say like, you know, I want to be treated like a man? Because that's like something you hear. It's like, I just want to be treated like a man. But I don't even know what that is. Yes, I hear that argument. And I counter that argument with, I want to be treated like a human, right? I, I want to be treated like a, like a human. I want, to, I, I want to be loved. I want to be respected. I want to be communicated to. I want to have community, right? I want to be in space with positive people. I want to have a space where I can lay my head down when shit goes awry. I'd love a home-cooked meal, right? I'd love to get this ball head rubbed, right? Those things, right? So if those are the things that mean that I'm being treated like a man, yes, I want those things, right? I don't want to be treated like a bitch. Nah, hell no. I guess, but I think if I'm being treated like a bitch, that means I'm not being treated like a human. Right. It's a lot of its vocabulary usage. Right, exactly. It's word usage, yeah. 
I'm 33. Uh, how old are you, doctor? We don't discuss my age on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, we don't, we, don't, we don't discuss it. Like I said, that's perfectly fine. I'm going to let people guess that I might be 50, but <laughs> <laughs> listen, like I said before, anything you don't want to talk about, feel free. No, no, no. I, 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 I'm, I'm going to be celebrating my second 50th birthday in a couple months. Congratulations. That's a beautiful achievement. Thank you. You look younger than me. <laughs> nah, brother. So can you expand a little bit on what conservative masculinity is for especially for our male listeners i think this is a very important topic that we honestly really haven't covered on this show i'm learning so i'm taking this as a free session so thank you very much you are welcome my producer sam will take care of the invoice (laughs) (laughs) if you could just expand on kind of what we're dealing with now with uh conservative masculinity if i'm defining conservative masculinity it's, it's around these traditional values traditional values of what we think like stoicism I don't want to say emotionless, but really, really careful with emotion. It is this manly exterior and demeanor. It is this perception of like hierarchical leadership and thinking about that, that there's a leader of the pack and that leader should be strong. And how we show strength is being able to make critical decisions during period of time to lead the family and that people are looking up to you. This conservative masculinity, in my opinion, is also seeing heterosexuality as like the pinnacle of masculinity yes, and that any of the other various forms of masculinities, right. Don't come to compare to this heterosexual cisgender masculinity, what we see. Right. And so, and then it is a shunning of anything that is not cisgender heterosexual masculinity. It is not leader. It is not the firm handshake. Right. And don't get me wrong. You better shake my hand with a firm hand. Yeah, yeah. I'm that way too. Uh, there are certain principles I'm like, yo, yeah, yeah. The the omega dog in me is like, shake my hand with a firm hand, say, or it is just coming out. So, you know, that's a part of my own growth as well. It also, this conservative masculinity has a place for women. There's still ornamentation that goes along with the feminine. Ela- elaborate on that, because th- that's what I'm really trying to learn is understanding like my toxic masculinity through femininity, mm-hmm. like through my partner, not so much as looking for her for all the answers, but kind of being able to see what she's trying to say to me is not attacking me as a man or my masculinity. And that's a wonderful piece of growth, Danny, because I think the conservative masculinity is not really thinking about what the woman is offering or so, you know, woman is offering in regards to their growth or their trajectory or things like that. Conservative masculinity sees women as subordinate and as ornate. Thinking about that, if you're growing, you're listening and understand what your partner brings to you, right? Like I said, my ex-fiance was the greatest partner that I've ever experienced because she was she was my partner. Really is a team. It really is a team. But I had to realize that I had to see her as my equal and that she also had to show me things that would say, okay, you are my equal. Instead of me saying that, I, what, what do I have to do to be your equal? For sure. And it's also like, as partners, though, it's not like you have to prove something to me. But in a way, it's like, you know, we all want to be the best version of ourselves for our partners, right? But we also, I find myself wanting the best version of my partner more than I want the best version of myself. That's great. In mine, it's vice versa as well. So when I see that my fiance is like, hey, like, maybe we could take the garbage out or like, hey, uh, like, did you go to the gym today? 
she's not attacking me. She's just trying to get the best version of myself to come to the forefront. But what is it that makes me feel as if I'm being attacked? That socialization that we talked about. Right. And to be honest with, there may be some deeper issues around, you know, depending on what it is. Like, I will take out the trash when I want to take out the trash. I will go to the gym when I want to go to the gym. I don't need you telling me, right? I'm the man in this, right? You know what I'm saying? You know, how about you cook dinner, right? Right. How about you take care of the kids? You know, those types of things. And we lose sight of like, we're in this together. And have you gone to the gym today? Because she sees you going to the gym. It might motivate her to go to the gym. Well, he didn't go to the gym today, so I don't really have to go myself, right? He's not doing his thing. So maybe this is where we are. But as her partner, she's like, hey, babe, did you go to the gym? You're like, yeah. Well, I'm about to go. What did you do? Or something like that that shows her the example of, hey, he's keeping it up. As any team, I'm going to be toxically masculine right here and talk about a sports reference. But what I'm going to say, I'm going to mansplain it. It's when you have like, you know, a team and you see somebody else that's just going harder. You, you are inspired by the people around you. I think it's very important to, you know, the, the circle that you keep is you create that circle, especially when you get to it to be an adult and you can make your own choices about who's around you most of the time. You know, and also it's, she's my fiance. She's like, I want you to live past 65, my man. You know, it comes down to just basic, also uh, animalistic need. It's like, we're going to have children that are going to need a father to care for them. So like there is some, you know, scientific reasoning behind it. I think it's very hard for men to accept being told what to do by, like you said, somebody who is supposed to be subordinate, as history would say. To even go towards that, it's like you were talking about, you know, my brother and I have a podcast as well. And we were just talking about it on the show before. It's like you think of like all like a lot of these amazing male figures in our lifetime, right? A lot of the times you look to their female relationship history. It's not great. It's not awesome, you know, and it's like, man, it's like, but they did amazing things. It's like John Lennon, you know, like he wrote Imagine, but he kind of like hit his wife at one point. Do we assess these things? Do we let them go? Do we learn from them? I think it's the latter. We could get into this whole cancel culture piece. If you go read a book on Mahatma Gandhi, you know, it's like great guy, a lot of weird shit with ladies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, do we I, I, I do. Do, do. Like, do we consider them to be hypocrites or a victim of the times? It's hard, important to the infrastructure of cultures. Right. And so two things. We're human beings. I'm always going to go back to that. No matter how like gangster you are. Right. We're human beings. We are flawed beyond belief. All of us, right? Flawed beyond belief, right? We think about the greatness of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, right? Right. Love some ladies. Love some ladies. Does it make his work any less great? That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's almost like you got to like separate the work of the art from the human aspect that they go through on a day-to-day basis. And now, now there's some, some, some extremes we might have, like, like R. Kelly, like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't, like, you might be one of the guys, I will not listen to R. Kelly. Step in the name of love has been taken out of the wedding pocket. Yeah, uh, yeah the wedding it, it, exactly. The non-legalized frailties of masculinity, right? You know, where you're not stepping over the legal bounds right. and harming, right? The frailties of being a human and being flawed looking at our leaders, I think we're not giving them a pass, but I think that we learn from them. I think that's the biggest thing. And I'm not a big fan of cancel culture at all. Neither am I. I fucking hate it. Because of that, people don't learn, right? Oh, you've canceled me. So fuck you. 
Yeah, it's it's the epitome of taking your ball and going home. Exactly. And so, you know, for someone who's worked in DEI for so long, it's like, don't fire the person unless some, unless the act is completely egregious. It's time to educate them and put them in a process to learn, right? If you really care about the person, you're not going to want them to repeat what the, the, the behavior that they're doing. Exactly. You know, if it's egregious and they go to jail, hopefully in those systems, there's rehabilitation. They're teaching them. Because talk about toxic masculinity. Exactly. I, I hate cancel culture because people can go back into their camps right. and sit with their people and conspire about, hey, I was canceled. Right. Right. And, and so they're sitting in an uh, echo chamber of their people instead of saying, oh, I had the opportunity to learn. Right. And I took it. And this is what I learned coming out of this. And so you can sit in your echo chamber and that's what we do. And that's what's wrong with our country right now, because we're sitting in our camps, we're echoing each other all day long, and we're not going out and finding out what it means to be a human being with other people anymore. When it comes to uh, uh, talk to masculinity in the black community, what do you think is the driving force behind that, though? So I'm going to make a very, very challenging statement, right, that I said earlier. Toxic masculinity in the black community exists, but on a small scale. We just don't get a chance to see, right, what healthy masculinity looks like on a larger scale in our communities, right? Fathers, mentors, uncles, teachers, lawyers, doctors, right? Presidents. Let me say that again. Presidents. President, right? Seeing those images of what it looks like to be healthy. And so if we're seeing unhealthy masculinity in any community, right? It is on a smaller scale than what we think. And I think it is our ability to say, okay, this behavior is actually not conducive to our communities, to our families, right? And it's us providing the leadership and mentorship to those men who have ascribed to that, right? To shift that thinking, right? So I, I want to get away from toxic masculinity and the black culture and the Latin culture, whatever, and begin to move this conversation around these are images of what healthy masculinity looks like in our communities and we need more symbols of that it's so hard for me as a man to admit that when it comes to certain situations my thought process can be 100% toxic in the situation now i have you know a little more grasp on my feelings and my emotions and as a person but i'm a work in progress just like everybody else we all are now when you're talking about positive imagery, right? I feel like there's the angry black man syndrome that is placed amongst black men in the black community. I always just say back, like these people were forced to drink out of different water fountains. They were slaves. They were said that they were what? Th three quarters of a man, three fifths, three fifths mm -hmm. of a man. These are things that generationally that you're going to harbor for ages and ages and ages. And it probably sadly, I hope one day it does, but it will probably never go away. You open any book. I, when I was in school, they covered slavery in two days. We're seeing a whitewashing or an attempt to whitewash the historical narratives of this country as we're seeing arguments across critical race theory and uh, the different things that are happening because people want, don't want to deal with the historical reckoning that is happening in our country. Yeah. And then when we learned about slavery, it was, you know, she was really nice, but it was like the 82 year old white lady. God bless her. Uh, since then, she's passed on. She was a nice lady. 82 years ago, I don't, I don't know, you know. You're probably doing some stuff yourself that probably wasn't great for this book. So I'm just saying, like, everybody through media is said, you know, angry black man syndrome. Do black men have a legitimate gripe to be angry? Don't they not? Yes. 
Yes. I'm thinking about the epigenetics that historical stress for folks that have been through trauma. Yeah. That have been through trauma, that are passed down within genes. Yes. I mean, I get angry every day over something stupid, something stupid, right? You know, when uh, Senator Harley is, is questioning Judge Brown, right? All right. About her being soft on child porn. Right. And the, the smear that goes, you know, when the uh, congressman from South Carolina, when President Obama was giving his first speech, it said called him a liar. Right. I'm angry. Right. I, I'm angry. But I also know that I'm 100 percent responsible for my emotions. Where's the cut off? We've talked about historical figures not having the best, you know, women rap sheet from time to time. In terms of where do we start to rebuild black men when it comes to toxic masculinity? Is it counseling? Is it positive imagery? Is it couples counseling? Does it start in kindergarten? Does it start in pre-K, high school? You know, because they never really taught us as kids to not be toxic. The schooling that I got, you know, it was kind of, you know, the state mandates us to teach this. Let's get this out of here. But they never really taught us. I'll talk about curriculums all day, how terrible they are. But for me, it's they never taught me how to write a check. They never taught me how to start a 401k. They never taught me about health insurance. And they did slavery in two days. And then also, they never taught me how to treat people the right way. It's very strange how there's no like, uh, like there's human resources and stuff, but like this should be stuff that's directly in the curriculums. No, if you look at the old adage, and I, I want to correct myself first, it, it, Judge Jackson, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, as I want to make sure I've been saying Judge Brown, but I wanted to make sure that I said it correctly. I think that if we look at it, takes a village to raise a child. If we expect the education system to, to do everything, then that's our fault. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but I also think like I lived in New Orleans for 15 years and New Orleans has an up and down relationship with education. But I also know that there are ancillary organizations like Son of a Saint with Sonny Lee, who are doing amazing things with young boys whose fathers have been incarcerated or not in their lives. Right. To give them resources. Right. About what it means to be and what it looks like to be healthy developmentally and growing up and providing the resources. Uh, there's the Silverback Society. Uh, its founder, Lloyd Dennis, right, is really working through with young males in middle school about what it means to grow up and be a healthy young man and what it means around leadership and development and treating like treating humans as humans and, and how they should. I'm never going to be one to rest like full development of a child on the education system. Yeah, well, then you're really in trouble. Right, then you're really in trouble. But I think that if we are funding and founding organizations like like those two who are amazing organizations that are helping specific populations of young men grow to be the future leaders, I think about Austin Taylor, who is also the CEO and lead at St. Augustine uh, High School in New Orleans is one of the most prolific all-boys schools in the country. I think about that in our ways of making sure that we have more President Obamas. For sure. That we have uh, more Lee Merritts who are, who are running for office in Texas. We think about that. How do we do that? We need more models. I grew up every day watching a father go to work and be one of the most prolific civil rights leaders, principals, teachers, fathers that I've ever known. And it made its way down to you. Yeah. So I had a model. Yeah, it made its way down to me. And so I also got some of his bad ways too. However... It takes a village to raise a child and thinking about how do we amass the villages to come together to raise our children? Yeah, like what do we do to get them to buy in? There should be more of, like you said, like as much as I was talking about school, I think the, the same amount should go into community as well. Because, you know, these kids are only in school if they're there. You used to cut school all the time. You know what I mean? I'm just being honest. From what, eight to three? 
there's a whole bunch of hours left in the day. You got parents that have to work. A lot of places, if there's both parents in the household, a lot of times both parents have to work. You know, when it comes to therapy, like what percentage would you say are people of color, males that go to therapy on a regular basis? Probably about 30%. Wow. That's an interesting conversation. We talk about if we're leaning towards what mental health looks like in our community and particularly for black men. I gave a speech uh, on Saturday night to the Good Brothers of Omega Sci-Fi fraternity in Hampton and talked about, you know, the, the themes of what happens, your themes that have come across my show over the last five years. And that self-awareness was one of the biggest things when I asked people the question, what's a revolution? Their answers have been somewhat around right? Finding and really doing the inward look within themselves to then move into the spaces of how they can get better. And, and many of times they said therapy has been a part of that. Like I learned that, you know, that I was the toxic one in the relationship, right? That I was the one who was always had one foot in one foot out. That's a hard hump to get over too. I'm very transparent about me. I was the one who was one foot in one foot out and who always had somebody else on the side right? To make sure if this relationship didn't go well, I could easily jump to the next one and be one foot in and one foot out and keep it going. As a psychologist, you know, PhD in developmental psychology, psychological science, right? And, and knowing that this conversation around who goes and who doesn't, right? It's still, there is still a stigma around talk therapy for Black men, right? Why do I need that, right? And then the Christian church doesn't also you know, do as much as it could to move more black men into the space because it hasn't been seen. Oh, no, it's just pre prey on it. Right, right. It, it, exactly. And then there's still a femininity around that women go to talk therapy. Men use a, a number of ways to get through, to cope. Right. They'll drink through it. They'll fight through it. They'll fuck through it. We'll do whatever we have to do to just like, no, nah, we're good now. We're okay. Right, exactly. I really hope whoever's beeping all of these F words out, I, I apologize. <laughs> no, that's fine. I got a button right here. <laughs> uh, but I was going to say, though, over like the last two years, obviously with the pandemic, has the number gone up or gone down, you think? I'm going to hope. And I, I, I haven't seen the latest statistics. I'm going to. Yeah, I haven't either. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm just saying maybe in, in your travels, I would hope that it's up. No, but I, I'm going to think I will say what has gone up in our community is the level of depression and anxiety. Suicides have also increased. And, and interestingly enough, for a time period, black boys uh, 15 to 24 had the highest rates of suicide within the country. And you don't hear anything about it. Yeah. It's not something that is talked about. And you know, when someone takes their life, we think about the act, Danny, right? The act in itself, but the precipitating events that lead to someone taking their life, right? That we think about like, getting up every day and going about our day and serving ourselves and serving folks. But that person is thinking that I don't want to be a part of this life anymore. And I've had two of my frat brothers over the last 14 months take their lives. Right. And you just, you would never have known until the day that it happened because you never know what somebody's going through. And that's the ability that we need more opportunities to talk in groups and to talk to someone to relieve the angst, the tension, the pain, the loneliness, the lack of community, all of those things, because we're going to see an increase in that happening, particularly as men get older. So uh, just to give you a little like story about me is I was hospitalized for four days at uh, Atlantic Hill Hospital, in New York City. I always say the name of the hospital because they helped build me a network. They helped me get started in therapy, but uh, I was going to take my own life as well. Sorry to hear that. 
It's all right. The, the, the reason for that is why I'm here right now. And this is why I do this show. And I get to talk to amazing people like you uh, for a living. So, you know, when I got there and you touched on something, though, I think group therapy is just as important, if not more important than one on one therapy, because like you said, it's positive imagery, but it's also positive reinforcement. Seeing people your age, your color from your community seeing them going through the same things, that's one of the first steps to knowing that I wasn't feeling alone and that I had shared, even down to things like shared interests amongst people who have thought about possibly taking their lives. You know, what was their thought process going throughout everything? You know, uh, what are we, like you said, as humans, you know, what as humans, what are these things? I, I am a, such an advocate for group therapy. You know, um, I've done uh, AA, I've done NA, those things have been nothing but beneficial to me. I know uh, every case is different. Some people have good experiences, some people have bad. But I do really want to stress that the idea of group therapy, if you are afraid to go to a one-on-one -on -one therapist, try going to a group meeting. It's something about the effort. And it's also something about knowing that you're not alone in those situations that I think are extremely important. Especially when you talk about the statistics of, uh, of the Black community, if Black men were able to see how much it's going on around them closely, not what they see on TV or on Twitter, or, you know, if they got to see it from people that they know, I think it's just something that would help open a lot of eyes. Danny, I totally agree. And, and uh, I'm grateful that you shared your story with me. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you so much. And hearing more stories like that, like you said, being able to say, I was on the brink, right? One of my guests, Sean Dove, who prolific New Yorker, former CEO of the Coalition for Black Male Achievement, talks about the same journey right? The, the same journey where he was about to take his life by throwing himself on the, on the tracks on the New York subway. I was going to jump off the 11th floor terrace, baby. Yeah. And it's good that you're here in this space and I'm honored to be in this space with you and knowing that community is so key and support the struggles of men and the struggles of people. We don't know the narrative or the narrative that's going on in people's not in people's lives or the stressors that... How's Mr. Dove doing today? He's doing well. He's doing, he's do, he's doing quite well. A family, uh, twin boys, you know, um, 57 years old. And it's just, you know, has been a beacon of light for many, many of us who have come behind him. But to hear him tell that story, you would never know because Sean is a gregarious, boisterous, loving, you know, servant of the world. And you just never know what the backstory for someone and how the resilience, right? And he talks about his resilience story. What I hear from you is, is your resilient story and how getting to this point right, meant that you had to have a community and a network of people to give you what you need. And, and the thing is, too, is like when you talk to your friends and family around that time, it's like, oh, it's all right. Like, you know, this will pass and stuff and lacking the professionalism. No one in my family is a psychologist, psychiatrist, a therapist, you know, going there. And allowing myself to put down my uh, a masculine, I can do this. I'm a man. I can get through these hard times on my own. I can do all this shit. And being able to just kind of let that costume, you know, come off, and say, you know, I'm just going to give it my best shot because it really made me realize how bad I did want to be here. And then it's like I struggle with my mental health so much. I said, Danny, one of the dr driving factors though was it. It was like, Danny, if you go ahead and do this, you're going to ruin people's lives for generations. In terms of, I just thought about how much it would impact everybody else for me to make this decision. But I let go of that thinking. I was like, dude, you got to remember, like, this is something that you got to fix in, within yourself here. 
And to, to be where I was, you know, four or five years ago to where I am now, it's, it's unbelievable. But like how you said about um, Mr. Dove, 57 years old, twin boys, those are people I look up to that have seen some shit and they're down the road and he's got children. I don't have children yet, but it's, it's one thing in my life that I can't wait to do. You know what I mean? Um, so to see his story, that's a beacon of light, you know, to me. And that was on your podcast, you said? Yeah, yeah. What's the name of your podcast so the people, you know, listening, if they want to go listen to the story? It's called The What's Your Revolution Show with Dr. Charles Corpru. It's on all podcast medium. And this year, it will actually be on Black Box TV. So it'll be the, the video aspect will be on Black Box, Round Box, excuse me, Round Box TV. It's all good. Listen, the black, like, uh, yeah, yeah. You can find it anywhere, like the Black Box in a plane. <laughs> exactly. Look at you signing TV deals. <laughs> I'm trying, man. Yeah, I'm trying. For you, growing up, when did you start going to therapy? When did you start showing a, a strong interest in it, in psychology? Like, were you just one of those kids? You were like, yeah, what the fuck is up with this guy? Were you inquisitive from a young age or was this something that you just later on in life, you're like, you know what? This brain thing's kind of interesting. I'm going to try and find out how it works. I'm trying to see if this is two questions, but I, I think what I heard the first question is, when did I start going to therapy? Yes. I got my heart broken, Danny. Damn. I got my heart broken in my late 20s. I got my heart broken badly. So you were the one foot one, one in, one out, and then someone pulled the fast one on you. No, no, I was two feet in for you know the, one of the one of the only times in my life that I was two feet in with uh, with a woman who was nine years older than me, and you know I was immature. I was quite emotionally immature and was all in, and you know we had a wonderful physical relationship, and I was emotionally immature to think that this wonderful physical relationship that we had that illuminated so many things sexually that I had never experienced in my life was actually love. And then she left and then she left and came back and left and came back and left and came back and then finally left and doing all those periods of time there was someone else. It was just treacherous and it ripped me apart. They do have that power. They, yeah, relationships have that power. And I could not fight through the pain that I was in. And so I started going to therapy. It was the first time that I went to therapy. and. It really, really helped me work through that period in time of my life and to really see myself as a young age that what love is, what love wasn't, and also really dive into my childhood and what I saw love as. And so it was really interesting. That was the first time I've been in you know, constant therapy for the last eight years. Were you stigmatized a little bit before you went? Yes. And I can't say even as a psychologist that I'm not still stigmatized by certain things like questions, you know, questions. And I'm like, well, who do I go to ask this question about? Like, why am I having that feeling right. around going and so on? I was like, you're a trained psychologist, right? But I still think that there's, especially as a, if I'm couching this in our gender construct, there's still some things like as a man, like, well, do I go to therapy to ask this question? Like, who, who do I ask? Is it a male therapist? Is it a female therapist? Who, you know? Anytime that I feel like a therapy, like questionnaire, it's like, oh, damn, it's like, Am I a dick if I want to talk to a dude? It's in there. The construct is in there. It's like, damn, I'm like filling out a questionnaire to like say like I'm a toxic douche. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there are some constructs or stigmatization that I that I work through. I want my therapist, you know, my therapist for the last eight years has been a man. Ironically, but before that, that it had always been women. And so I was like, hmm, well, let me try something. I was like, because I don't want to go in sounding like a bitch to a man. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's like, yo, like some my mom did like really upset me one time. And then you didn't want to see it. And you're like, yo, like, don't be a bitch. The woman is going to be more empathetic, right? 
but I had to get over that. So your late twenties, I don't want to harp on it too much. No, it's all good. You get your heart shattered, shattered, shattered to pieces from there. As you're going and, and like, obviously doing your own, is it legally, do you have to have a psychologist if you, if you are one? It is a trusted practice. And I don't want to talk about the laws of various states, but it is a trusted practice, right? Because therapists are imbibing so much, right? Yeah. How do you not take your work home with you every day? Right. Right. They're imbibing so much of the emotionality that goes along, right? And if you're not working through your own stuff, you actually have the ability to transfer that back to your patients. And so you must consistently work through and actually, right, I'll, I'll call it a psychological and emotional detox, right, to get out of the emotions of your clients so that you can give them the best service. Just because you're a therapist does not mean, and I am not, I just want to say, I am not a therapist. I'm a developmental psychologist. I study behavior. My work informs clinical psychologists, right? And their work as well. But for them, the ability to be an objective third party, right? An objective party in someone's life, they cannot transfer their own stuff to their clients, right? It actually causes more harm. Right. Like I had one therapist that like told me a story about his childhood and I was like, wait a second, what are we doing here? I was like, (laughs) I thought this was me. Selfishly. I was like, you know, you're kind of cool, but like, I think you got some of your own stuff going on. I'm going to switch it up. You don't want to transfer it, 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 your stuff onto your clients. You can leave residue. Yeah. That's why I, I knew I could never be a teacher. I knew I could never be a therapist or a psychiatrist or a psychologist, anything, because I just take too much shit home with me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that I've tried to do less of, especially just being like, you know, running my own business and just learning that, you know, this is everyday life. Like, you can't take everything so seriously. Uh, for me, as a man, I want people to know this, that therapy was the best thing that I could ever do for myself. While I do these shows, and I'm sure you do your show an hour, you know, sometimes I feel like I just have to state just straight facts. If you are a fan of me or Dr. Charles, if you're listening to this, like, therapy is dope. And if the first guy doesn't work or the first woman doesn't work, just keep trying because when it does, when you do put in the work, it's just like anything else you do in your life. You know, it's something that when it fits, it feels fantastic. Just like anything else in your life that feels fantastic, an amazing food, an amazing sexual conquest. Still not toxic masculinity verbiage. Yeah, right? <laughs> Gotta let it leak through every once in a while. So my last question that I like to ask everybody after, after this one last one, what can America do to lower the depression rate in this country, especially coming out of the pandemic now? Where's a good starting point, especially for men, people of color, but specifically men of color? It's a good question, Danny. Because this is a big transition period for everybody. It is. And it is a very individualized answer. For sure. For me, it has been reconnecting or finding a new community of people, right? That don't have to be like-minded, but have empathy and care, adventure, Right, or adventure minded, have a growth mindset and the ability to be self aware with themselves and open with others. So, for me, like I think about last night, one of my frat brothers I, I reconnected with, he was like, Hey, we play pool on Tuesday nights. I work long hours. I'm training for a triathlon. I'm house flipping. I work for a VC firm. I've got two elderly parents. Yeah, I haven't even taken a shower today. Right, right, right. <laughs> you, know, so you know, and they don't get together till eight o'clock on Tuesday nights. And I was like, I need some community because I've been in this house 
I'm not in a relationship. I'm single. I've been feeling lonely. I've been feeling a little depressed. I've been having some thoughts and I haven't said that out loud. I've been having some thoughts, feeling the weight of it all. And yeah, at eight o'clock on Tuesday nights, I'm going to go play pool. I'm introduced to new guys who are not particularly my frat brothers, but they're just good people and they're having a good time and we're talking and we're laughing and we're joking and we're playing pool and I haven't won a game yet. We'll get there. But that in itself has brought me joy. I think the second thing is that is find something where you can right get outside of yourself that is going to be outside of your zone of comfort. We've built like new comfort zones like that we have to shed already. Exactly. So just outside of your zone of comfort, like for me, I started playing pickleball, which is the fastest growing game in the country right now. Yeah, very wide. I started playing pickleball, <laughs> which is, you know, for anybody just Google pickleball. Fun game though. Right. It is a fun game, but it's outside of my zone of comfort. The people I'm playing with are outside of my zone of comfort. I have built a community. I play as much as I can to the limitness of, of my frailties. And it just allows me to find some joy without breaking my body like these car accidents have. You know what I'm saying? First of all, I'm happy you're still here. I think it's very important that you're telling your story and you're putting in so much fucking work. Like I, I read over your resume before this. I was like, it's going to be 35 minutes before we even get into the episode. <laughs> I'm glad you did not. All right. Yeah. You know, some people it's like, let me throw a couple because I like people to explain themselves because the story is more than the credit. Right. So it's like, if I just read the credits, it's like, all right, now we're like, we're skipping over like a bunch of awesome shit that we can talk about. But obviously, can you tell everybody what went into you starting, what's your revolution and what does that mean to you? And what should that mean to the listener? What's your revolution? Because like you said, like a lot of our new, uh, like dealing with depression is individualized, right? So uh, what's your revolution? I want to know what yours is. My overarching revolution has always been the upliftment and, and, uh, of boys and men of color, right? That whatever I do, since the day I stepped into my professional world, Right. Everything that I have done, whether as a teacher, as a coach, whether as a researcher or professor, uh, as a consultant, as a VC, as a podcaster, everything I have done has been for in service of boys and men of color and uplifting their stories and providing services, products, everything that allows us to thrive as people and as humans. So that is my overarching revolution when people ask me. Now, individually, it is it changes every year. Like this year, my revolution is to be more emotionally intelligent, right? Because I knew, right, you've been asking about anger and what it, how that anger wells up. I want to be a better version of myself because I can see how anger takes hold of my life. And so to be more emotionally resilient, to be resilient to rejection, to re be resilient to anger, right, to show up as an emotionally intelligent human is my revolution this year. And I am implore people to think about, right, as we, as we say on the show, it's the most thought-provoking question of one's life, right? How do they want to transform? How do they want to... Re and revolution is not just changing. Revolution is a cataclysmic shift in who you are. If we think about revolutions, they have shifted, right, the trajectory of cities and countries and legions and whatever. How are you doing the same thing about yourself? And so small... What's Your Revolution came from sitting at graduation at Tulane in 2011. Tom Friedman was the graduation speaker. And he wove a, a wonderful story of what was happening in Egypt and the Middle East with the young students who said, we wanted, we wanted to have a different life. 
to what was going on over here in the United States, where we were coming out of a recession in President Obama's first term. And he said, it's going to be the hardest time to go find a job, but it's going to be the greatest time to go and invent something. And as I said the other night when I was speaking, think about all the things in the last 11 years, the technology that has come out that shifts, that has revolutionized our lives and how we interact, whether it's good or bad, right? And there are so many entrepreneurs. We've seen the rise of Bitcoin, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, right? Healthcare applications, right? FinTech, all the things came out of that recession where people said, I want to build something. And entrepreneurship has been one of the focal points of creating generational wealth in this country. So when I think about that, and when I ask people, what's your revolution? It is asking them to think more, what are you going to do within yourself that is then going to change you, your community, and the world at large? Because being a great entrepreneur doesn't mean right, you're creating a great product, right? Right. Being an entrepreneur means that you are, have done the work to see where the pain points are in you, that you can go out and be a great leader for an organization that builds product services for people to change their lives. Right. I just love having people on here who are so well-spoken. I'm just saying, it's like, you know... I use this PhD well, brother. Hey, listen, listen. Like I said, my mom would get mad if I didn't call you doctor because you went to school and you earned it. It's just a beautiful thing. It's like, for me, I've always had a hard time articulating myself. When I was younger, I was afraid to do like public speaking. Like, you know, like I was in a play once and I forgot a line and like traumatized me forever and shit. So like, you know, like being able to do this now, I don't know, man. It's just you, you meet people, whether it's through Zoom or in person, that people that inspire you. And I just want you to know our conversation today has inspired me to do a lot of self-research, but also just research in general. Uh, about psychology. You know, I, I went to college for two years, but psychology was the only class I got A's in. I actually cared about what I was reading. You know, I wasn't the best student, but it was something there. And then my last question before we go is how can women help, especially black women in the black community? How can women help? How can black women help black men with their toxic masculinity? They can't help. This is a counterintuitive answer. It's not their responsibility. Our responsibility is to take care of ourselves. Our responsibility is to do the self-work. Our responsibility is to take responsibility of our lives and emotion. Too much has been placed on Black women and women altogether. The single-handedly worst-treated human in the history of the earth is the Black woman. Right. And asking them how they help us be uh, more healthier is just a, a more of a burden on them. And so it is our job as men, our, our job as men of all races, right? To do the work it means to show up for all women and all humans, right? And, and thinking about that. And I'm always going to, right, think about my humanity and our humanity and what it means to show up for other people. And it starts with our own self or women are not responsible for the actions of men when it comes to them, right? Just because of the clothes that people put on doesn't mean that my, I, it dictates how I treat them. It's counterintuitive too. It's like, you want to be a man, but like, you're going to like look to a woman to help you out with everything. It's like, right. Exactly. I will never ask, right. Like it's, that is your role to help me. I can ask for your partnership. Right. I can ask for your love and support and understanding. It is not your job, right. To say, I need you to help me be better. Promise. Last question. Are you happy today? <laughs> I am extremely happy being able to spend this time with you, man. It's been a great conversation and I'm grateful to be on your show. Thank you so much. A lot of times people just don't ask people that question. It's my favorite question on every show is, is if the person I'm talking to is happy today. And then, you know, I, I've gotten some, a couple of no's, 
Mostly yes. So uh, it means the conversation went well. Dr. Charles Corpru, uh, where can everybody find you on the internet, find your show, find all there is uh, for the content that you're sharing? Because, uh, you know, I think the topic of conversation we had today is very enlightening. I think all men should have heard the conversation that we had today. And I think, you know, two people from two different backgrounds, one who's admitted uh, to be a conservative uh we have conservative toxic masculinity. Um, it, it, it was an eye-opening episode for me. So I thank you for your time. And I want everybody else to be able to find you uh, wherever they can. So it's basically, it's What's Your Revolution show on everything on uh, IG, Facebook. The podcast is on all podcast mediums. I know people like uh, Apple and Spotify. So those two, but we're on all podcast medium, wherever you get it. The What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corpru. Uh, Facebook, What's Your Revolution with Dr. Charles Corporate and IG is What's Your Revolution. Love it. Uh, thank you so much for your time, doctor. Make sure to go check him out. Go uh, check out What's Your Revolution everywhere. And again, thank you so much for your time, doctor. I appreciate it. No worries. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And good luck with you as well. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!